Hello, and welcome to a brand new podcast. My name is Hannah Roberts, and I am one of the research assistants working on Called to Serve. Along with Taylor Adams and Dr. Melody Maxwell, I'll be sharing with you the oral histories of women who were ordained to ministry in Atlantic Baptist churches. You will learn about the challenges these women faced in seeking to serve and about the rewarding ministries they've enjoyed in spite of those challenges. This project is led by Dr. Maxwell of Acadia Divinity College and is funded by a grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Make sure to stick around to the end of today's episode to hear a short conversation I had with Dr. Maxwell about her vision for the project and how you as a listener can get the most value out of hearing these stories. Today's episode features Heather McGregor. Heather was ordained in 1994 at the Port Williams United Baptist Church, and she went on to serve as chaplain at a nursing home in Wolfville, Nova Scotia, as well as at the Kentville Valley Regional Hospital. In this interview with me, she describes the particularly challenging experience she had going before the examining council on her road to ordination, and the contributions she made towards improving that experience for future ordination candidates. I lived at a time when everybody on the street went to church, but we were the only family who did not. At the age of nine, we moved from Ottawa to a Toronto suburb, and there was a church a half a block away. Minister called on my parents, and my father and I attended at one Sunday morning. My father was disappointed that congregants were not discussing the sermon at the end of the service. So he never returned. However, I was allowed to go to Sunday school after that. When I was about 15, a couple of girls in that Sunday school invited me to go to a Billy Graham crusade. And that really got me questioning. I had felt a real pull to go forward that night. But my friends had gone forward the night before. And I was too shy to go forward alone. It was a huge conference. When I got home, I told my father about it, and he kindly talked to me about mass emotionalism. And it was probably a good thing I had not gone forward, as I really didn't know what I was doing, which was true. In my university years, I met a young man during my summer work program who was a committed Christian. He talked about prayer as an important aspect of his life. And I complained that I had tried prayer, but it never went beyond the ceiling. He was very understanding. And since we were both science students, he suggested an experiment that I should try praying every day during the next two weeks to see if I could get through. Well, I did what he suggested. And before the two weeks were up, I was astonished by the sense that someone was listening. And the experience of being listened to changed my perception of God from impersonal to personal. I happened to purchase a book that had an introduction to each of the books of the New Testament, which I found very helpful to set what I was reading in context. And as I read, I became very drawn to the person of Jesus. And gradually, found myself wanting to live a life as he lived his. And I quietly committed my life to Jesus in my own residence room. And as a dietetic intern in Montreal after graduation, I was part of a small Bible study group. And through that group, I felt a need for trained biblical teaching. And I 
had a sense that someday I would study in a seminary. Um, I had no sense I would eventually be called into ministry. It began as a call to study. It was just not on my radar at all. After I married for the next several years, I took advantage of Bible studies in the area, raised my children. I led studies and spoke at retreats, taught Sunday school to teenagers and eventually the women's class in the church. And I just had a constant hunger to increase my knowledge. I finally felt I was ready to go to seminary. And the Acadia Divinity College, the Baptist Seminary, was the closest seminary to where I was. I wanted to study four subjects. And I felt that would be a good enough basis to continue what I was doing with the women. However, I found the studies were very stimulating, and I went on to take more than the four. There were very few women at the time I first started to go. The men weren't talking particularly to the women. Of the students, there was one student that was friendly, and I appreciated his speaking and saying hello. But in my early years, the majority just ignored me. I I wasn't visible. (laughs) As I accumulated these courses, it actually dawned on me that I might even graduate, which was never in my thought at the beginning. And I asked myself what I would like to do if I did graduate. And the answer just came very quickly to me. I would like to be the chaplain at the regional hospital. When the clinical education professor, Dr. Dennis Vino, learned of my interest, he approached me to apply for the position of chaplain at the local nursing home. And to my surprise, I got the position, even though I had no preaching and uh, no pastoral visitation experience. But this meant that I needed a church license and that I had to appear before the Board of Ministerial Standards as a candidate for ministry. Well, I still had my reservations about that. That question and that part of the journey was the most emotionally demanding part of my journey. Uh, I'd heard stories about the examining council for ordination, and they filled me with dread. It was at a time when Many still disagreed with women in ministry, even though convention had passed it. And as women, we knew there would always be votes against us. There were a couple of years when the council were, were counseled. Uh, if, they, if the reason for their negative vote was because the person was a woman, then they were asked to abstain. But then other years, that didn't hold. And the year that I was examined, that did not hold. In order to be ordained, there was always an intern year. And as a candidate, one had a mentor and one had um, a committee, usually a chair and and a few people. And on my committee, I had uh, residents from the nursing home as well as the local minister. And they were to examine every aspect of the candidate's ministry and report on it. And and the reports were to be available to the examining council if needed. If there was just sort of a little doubt, they were to be looked at to see exactly what kind of ministry there was, there had been. And I knew that my report was a very positive one. So I knew that if they had their doubts, that they could look at that and should be okay. 
We also had to submit a statement of faith on various doctrines. And because I was so fearful about this process, I submitted my statement ahead of time to four of my professors, including the principal of the Acadia Divinity College, and he was the chief examiner. He said he might ask me about the autonomy of the church, but other than that, he was quite satisfied that it was an adequate statement. Even though I was moving forward, and despite all the affirmation, I could not face the examining council unless I heard from God specifically that it was his direction that I go forward. I remember Dennis used to say, you're, you're like the one that stops at the, at the island and there's a boat there waiting. And you say, no, I'm waiting for God. And there's an airplane ready to take you. But you say, no, I'm waiting for God. That really was a pretty good description of what was happening to me. So I prayed for months on end, but I was driving home one evening and I could hear that my mind was saying something. And when I listened, there were the words of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but thine, O Lord. And I knew then that as Jesus dreaded his coming ordeal, yet he submitted, I was to do the same. When the day came, I waited in the big lobby outside of the lecture hall where the examinations were being held. There was no privacy. People were passing through to and fro. People could come over and talk. That was difficult. Um, my husband noticed that the gentleman that was being examined was sitting on a high stool and had his legs crossed in order to provide, make a table for his papers. And so he spoke to someone and said, you know, I mean, I had a dress. <laughs> and he said, my wife needs a table. And so they provided a table. It was a footstool this, this high. So it was absolutely useless. There was a man that led the candidates in. And this gentleman, I just felt a distinct contempt from this man. I know I didn't imagine it. Because later on, I talked to other women who had been through the process, and each of them had felt the same thing. So it was something I just had to dismiss and put out of my brain in order to go ahead. I was ushered to that high stool over which shone a bright light. The, the whole hall was in darkness except for these lights on the stage. And my stool faced away from the church members and my family that were there. So I, I couldn't get no encouragement from them. It, it was so dark that only somebody with deep set eyes was I able to really see a bit of the face of the person. So it was a very uncomfortable place to be. The gentlemen on the platform who were seated behind a table were various convention delegates, including the president who was conducting, monitoring the proceedings. I knew that he was not in favor of women in ministry. There was also the principal of the Divinity College, Dr. McRae, who did sit closest to me, and I was comforted by that as I had a, a reasonable relationship with him. He began the examination, and he was very complimentary uh, in his first statements. 
commending the doctrine of God. And he also asked questions that surprised me, but I was able to answer them. And then he turned to the council for their questions. And the first two questions I had were really good. I really appreciated them. One asked how I maintain connections as I would be a chaplain. I could be like a lone ranger. And so how did I maintain connections? And I thought that's really important. And so I explained, I certainly went to church every Sunday, uh, gained nourishment there, went to the ministerial in the town. And uh, I also had a couple of women who, who had some of the clinical training that I had, and we were able to help each other with issues that perplexed us. The other question was on my prayer life. But from then on, the questions became more antagonistic. One man wanted to know how I would handle speaking to a person who had not yet made a commitment to Christ. And without waiting for my answer, he offered his own answer and said, you'd tell him he was going to help. And I knew in responding as I did, that God is a God of love and that I would not appeal to such a person in terms of hell that likely solidified his vote against me. I was asked to agree with a particular doctrine of scripture that it was dictated directly by God. And with the excellent biblical training I had received, I was not able to agree with this. Another accused me of seeking ordination because you just want to lord it over us. These are not questions. These are statements. And I felt really sad that there was such a chasm of understanding, of misunderstanding between us. And the questions went on, and I began to hear that the verse in Psalm 22, the bulls of Bashan surround me. and. I guess as the questions went on and on, I became extremely thirsty, tired, and I couldn't see where the questions were really examining either my theology or my, my ministry. It, it was distressing. I know when I left, when they finally said it was over and I left the hall, I felt that I had answered I'd stayed true to my own beliefs. I hadn't perjured myself in any way. And then I was back out in this big lobby again where people come, go to and fro. As the, the council left and the observers left, no one looked in my direction. And finally, my area minister gave me the news that I had not received sufficient votes. But he did say there was a lot of upset around this. And he did say there was a reconsider would be a reconsideration at nine o'clock that evening that I was to come to. So I had to wait all day then for, for the rest of it. Um, over lunch, the president of, the, I can't remember the name of the Baptist College in Moncton, but the president of that college asked me if I could change my gender before the evening meeting. And his comments solidified to me the issue uh, in my mind. The only other woman appearing before the council that year was also denied. I believe there were eight men and they were all had sufficient votes to move forward. After waiting in the evening, after waiting for a couple of hours outside the door where the council was meeting, 
I was called in. And there it was declared there had been a miscarriage of justice. And I had now been accepted and was welcomed. Several people had come to the area where I was, wanting to give me support during that time. And after that meeting, one came forward to me and told me that the miscarriage of justice had to do with my statement of faith and that of a male's statement of faith. I was told that except for two areas, our statements of faith were practically identical and he had had sufficient votes. I had not. And I was very puzzled over this as I had not given my statement of faith to anyone beyond the professors, though I didn't know how this was possible. And a few days later, I voiced that to Dr. Vino, who was the professor of clinical pastoral education, and he had the answer. One candidate had been to prison for murder years before. Dr. Vino had been chaplain in the prison at the time. This man had a conversion experience to Christ. He had since felt called to ministry and gone through training out West, so he wasn't trained here. He presented his statement of faith to Dr. Vino for his assessment, and he found it wanting. He said that he gave him copies of several other statements he had on hand and removed any identifying markers. And I guess one of the statements of faith was mine. He said he obviously identified with my statement of faith, and that's why our statements were so similar. And then I will never forget his words. Your own work has saved you, Heather. The council preferred a murderer to a woman. A couple of weeks later, I was asked to meet with my minister and the upcoming president of convention to see if I had any suggestions for future examining councils. I told them I'd, I'd like to go to the convention council, not the examining council, but the ruling body of the convention. But that was not open to me. My first comment to these gentlemen had to do with the abysmal pastoral care of the candidates. And there was some surprise, as though nobody had ever thought about the candidates needing pastoral care. <laughs> the candidates would be better served with a quiet, private room while awaiting their turn um, and awaiting the results after they had been before the council. And preferably, there should be a compassionate clergy assigned to them so they could spend time collecting their thoughts ahead of time and being able to process some of their experience afterwards until they knew the results. And then I suggested the examining hall should be well lit. You should be able to see everybody in the hall. The candidate should have a chair with a back and a table for papers instead of that high stool. There should be water available to the candidate. I knew just how thirsty I had felt. There should be a limit on the questions one person could ask. Because towards the end, there was a group of about five or six uh, council members who, who kept rotating, asking the question. If a candidate was denied, their documented reason should be given to that candidate because they certainly didn't document any reasons at all to me. There needed to be more equal gender equality on the council. Now, the council was composed of a member from every association in Atlantic Canada, and they were all men. And I thought there should be an effort made to get more women because a woman needs a woman. Uh, even 
at the time I went before the Board of Ministerial Standards, I went into a, the room and I saw one woman in there and I just thought, oh, God, there's the woman. And then as it started, I realized she was she was the secretary. She was taking all the, the words down, but she was not engaged in this conversation. So there were 16 men interviewing. And that's a powerful experience for any woman to, uh, to have when you're going before them as a candidate. So I, I'm glad to be able to tell you that at least three quarters of my suggestions were put in practice. And within the next couple of years, I attended some of those uh, examinations. And I really was comforted that the examining council was much more humane. I was ordained at the Port Williams Baptist Church, November 25th, 1994. And at the service, our minister in his opening remarks described the encounter with the examining council as grueling. And then he stopped himself and we went on with the planned ordination. I, I worked at the nursing home and, a, and the nursing home made a real effort to bring as many residents who would benefit by a service like that as they could to come. And I thought it's important to try and, and use some symbols that will speak uh, to what the work is that I do as a chaplain. I chose the basin and towel, and I had one of the residents who was on my committee present that to me. And that symbolized the service of Christ. I really felt good about that. And then I had another person present me with a Bible, which was the prophetic aspect of working as as a minister or as a chaplain. And then uh, someone presented me with a gown. And if we go back to Aaron, he was presented with a gown as a priestly, as his priestly function to present uh, to God the concerns of the people and to present to the people the concerns that God had for them. And then the last one, I asked Dr. Vino if he would present this to me as a shepherd's crook to symbolize being an under-shepherd of the Good Shepherd. I very much enjoyed the work at the nursing home, visiting residents, supervising students, leading worship services. In 1997, the position of a coordinating chaplain for Valley Regional Hospital in Kentville was advertised. I began in 1998 at the hospital, and I remained there until the end of June 2010. I carried a pager at all times and over the years was called for crises in all departments of the hospital. The most difficult calls for me were pregnancy and infant loss and car accidents where children were involved. I att also attended ICU rounds and I attended weekly rounds of both the medical floor and the surgical floor. And anybody who was in the hospital 10 days or more was also on my possible list of visits. Just generally, when entering an institution, it takes a long period of time to earn acceptance in a discipline such as chaplaincy, uh, as it may not be familiar to many. 
And after a year and a half, one night there was, it was an emergency call and I could hear the nurses who were tending to the patients in an accident saying, she's here, she's here, she's here. And I realized that they were looking for me, that, that I was being accepted. Then I did some advocacy work for the clergy the hospital paved all the parking lot and then wanted to charge everybody for uh, for parking. And of course, even the staff was charged for parking. We were paid. We were being paid. <laughs> but I did go to the administration and said, I'm quite concerned that you should consider on the badge for the, the uh, clergy that it should come up as no parking charges. I said, these people come as volunteers, and yet they really are part of the healing team of the hospital. They considered it and and agreed. My chapel volunteers came to me and said, you know, we go around and patients keep saying, why can't this be on the television? Why can't we? We're too sick to get into a wheelchair and go down to the chapel, but we really like to watch a service. And so I got them to write a letter and all sign it. And I took it to my supervisor. And it wasn't long before she was able to get the in-house channel available so that we could televise the chapel services. The uh, volunteers that went around to the, the patients, I said they could ask if there was anybody that wanted their name mentioned in prayer. Often there were up to 40 names that came into that service. And there were times when I had opportunity, maybe the next day or two, to see some of those people. And they would say, I heard my name last night. And you could see that it really was supportive to them. And that gave me a lot of joy (laughs) as well. I also planned yearly educational visits for clergy and lay pastoral visitors to try and upgrade their understanding of the illnesses that people were facing. We had a, a cardiologist come and talk, and we had people who had had cardiology problems come and share their story. We did that with cancer, with schizophrenia, with stroke. I was also very aware that a lot of clergy are on their own. I mean, there was a wide variety of denominations, and and many clergy, sometimes their their churches didn't know they should give them a break to go on a retreat. We decided to have a retreat every year for the clergy and thought that perhaps the churches would give them permission to come if the hospital organized it. The year that I was went before the examining council, there were many people that came up to me afterwards. I remember one man said, I feel so embarrassed by my convention. <laughs> this is just not right. But I also had women that came and I didn't understand why I would be doing this at all. And I think over the years, I think there certainly has been a change, a more acceptance of women in ministry. As uh, churches are looking to have more than one minister, they're looking to have diversity. And diversity could be a woman, could be a Black person, could be um, an Indigenous person. Uh, I think there's more openness. But there certainly is still still the other. I think we're progressing, and I think issues will come up, and we'll have to deal with them. 
we are always going to be struggling with the perception that women should not be in ministry by certain people. It is a barrier. Um, my gratitude to the Acadia Divinity College for their affirmation and support at a time when it was very challenging for women called to ministry. It became work that I truly loved and that I felt I was made for. So I'm speaking with Dr. Melody Maxwell, who is heading up the Called to Serve Oral History Project. I'm wondering if you can just briefly summarize for us what is this project and what is our new podcast going to be about? Thanks, Hannah. It's great to talk with you. And we are really excited about this project, which consists of interviewing women who were ordained by Baptist churches in Atlantic Canada. And so there is around 100 women whose stories have not been told, and we want to hear their voices. The first woman was ordained in 1954, and the numbers rose after that, uh, with more women being ordained recently. And we really want to hear their stories and hear their voices and their experiences. So you focused on collecting oral history for a few different projects now. What is unique about oral history? Why is that something you're interested in? That's a great question. There's all types of history that are fascinating, um, but I've been working on some oral history projects recently, which are really fun because you get to hear from people who are alive and have vibrant stories to tell that we may not capture in other ways. They may not be in official institutional documents or journals, but we hear in their own words about their own experiences, recollections, feelings, and capture these really important historical moments and vignettes in ways we wouldn't otherwise have access to. More history, more historical work has been done on earlier years rather than more recent years. And so it's really important, I think, to catch those stories of women in the late 20th and the early 21st centuries as we look at what God has been doing among Baptists in Atlantic Canada and beyond. So in terms of your research, you know, we get the interviews and we're listening to them on the podcast, but what is happening with this information on your side? Yeah, we hope to get as many interviews as possible. And I'm really thankful to you, Hannah, and to Taylor Adams, the research assistants on this project. We will take these interviews and first of all, we'll put them in the archives at Acadia University, uh, transcriptions of them for future generations to access. We hope to perhaps have an online repository of them and then to do some analysis. What things do we learn? What can we understand about women in Atlantic Canada among Baptists from this data? So we'll be doing some historical research and then presentations in many different locations, scholarly conferences, as well as in churches, etc., where we can hear some of these women's voices, they can share with others, and women and men can consider the challenges and the opportunities women have faced, and perhaps women of all ages will be inspired to go further in their faith and ministry commitments as a result. That's very cool. How did you end up interested in this project? Uh, you've applied a couple times, I think, for funding. Yeah, I'm really pleased that this year we've received funding from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada for $55,000 to work on this project. And this is really significant because it will allow us to do as many interviews as we need to and to have the tools we need to analyze this research. And it's of interest to me because I am a woman in ministry. I 
actually, I'm one of those women who was ordained through 2020. That was the year in which I was ordained by an Atlantic Baptist church. So I suppose I'll be giving my interview as well. And so I'm excited to talk with peers and mentors in the faith about their experiences. So we have some totally new listeners to this podcast, and we have some listeners who have made their way here from our podcast, Atlantic Baptist Stories. Um, Can you give a a little guidance or direction for new listeners on, you know, there's going to be a variety of perspectives that are shared. So how can they get the most value out of their listening? Absolutely. First, I'd like to say thank you and welcome to all of our listeners. And please spread the word to others about the podcast. I think many will enjoy hearing and learning from the stories of these women. Uh, Keep in mind, of course, that the views of each speaker are their own. They will have a variety of perspectives and you might listen and compare and contrast. It may depend on what part of Atlantic Canada women are from. It might depend on especially what years what time frame they were ordained may have quite different experiences. I'd also encourage you to listen for the threads of connection between the stories. Do you hear similar challenges coming up multiple times or similar joys that the women had in ministry or strengths they bring to ministry? And then also listen to how some of the women's stories overlap as some of the older women were mentors to some of the younger women. I've been enjoying listening to the connections, picking up on those connections between the various women that we've interviewed. So we look forward to listening together with you. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for speaking with me and I am looking forward to sharing these. Absolutely. So am I. Thank you so much for your work, Hannah. Thank you to Heather McGregor for sharing her story and to Dr. Maxwell for speaking with me and putting in so much work to make this project a reality. You can find more information about this project at calledtoserve.ca or by emailing us at calledtoserve at acadiau.ca. Spread the word about this new podcast and join us again next week to hear another woman's story.